This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're tuned in to The Property Show, our weekly take on all things property related, and I'm Philip C. On today's property show, I'm with Dr. Suraya Ismail, the Director of Research at Kazana Research Institute, as we try to understand the issue of housing affordability and the ability of Malaysians to get onto the property ladder. So, you know, Suraya, we've had so many conversations, you know, multiple times about this whole discussion about affordability in the housing uh, sector. I guess with respect to housing now, how has affordability evolved? So, um, housing affordability in Malaysia, I mean, um, generally remains unaffordable. So, according to Demographia, uh, a median multiple of three and below signals that the housing market of an area is affordable. However, uh, Malaysia's median multiple affordability indicator has always caught above 3.0 since 2002, with the highest ratio of 4.9 recorded in 2014. Uh, Though housing affordability improved from 4.8 media multiple in 2018 to 4.1 in 2019, Malaysia's housing market still sits within the quote-unquote seriously unaffordable threshold, remained the same ratio registered in 2002. So hold on, 20 years not affordable, Yes. right? Since 2002, now we're in 2022, went up to its peak of mm. 4.17 multiple. Mm, 4.9, yes. 4.9 and it's dropped a bit, but mm. still super high yes. just before the pandemic. Yes. I really wonder how, how affordability has evolved during the pandemic then. Um, so basically, we have seen some price adjustment. Uh, has gone down a bit, but not to the extent that we would like to see a 3.0 type of benchmark. Mm. So that is still an issue. Now, the other thing we might want to um, understand is, so it's unaffordable and yet people can still buy homes. So this is a, a real issue about the financial sector giving mortgages that makes housing appear to be affordable because the tenure is longer. 30 years now they are going. They are, I mean, the private developers are lobbying for intergenerational loans, mm. which makes house prices that's expensive, quote-unquote, affordable for home buyers through mortgage. You're just stretching the loan yes. for a longer period. That's right. I wonder how in Malaysia our tenure of loans are compared to the rest oh. of the region. It's really bad um, because we are going 28, 30 years, whereas others are at 15 or uh, 18 years as compared to others in the region. And in some other countries, more developed countries, they're going down to 15, um, 15 years. Why is this important? If we talk about the property ladder, in order for you to, for example, when you are a single person, after that you're a household with two person, after that, uh, you know, a home with a four person, if you get into the property ladder with mortgages that's um, really uh, short duration, you can actually buy houses as your family grows bigger. So you buy houses that's accommodating your family needs and at decent prices as you go up in your career as well as you're the number of people you, you are responsible for in your family or in your household. So this is not happening in Malaysia, the property ladder, because the tenure is about 28 or to 30 years or 35 years. Yeah. And we have seen the outcome of that. So when we did the turnover rate of homes in Malaysia, we are not experiencing a property ladder. Most people keep their houses up to 28 to 30 
years on average. Yeah, you're stuck on the first round. Yes. Essentially, you get on the round, <laughs> but you can't move to the second yeah, or third yeah, that's round. Not, that's, that's the not, biggest problem that's here. The biggest so there's problem. no mobility, nope. economic mobility or social mobility happening because of the tenure of the loan. You're actually paying up the loan all the way up to retirement. Yes. And mind you, if the loan is about 30, 35 years, even if you want to cash in or for example, you want to reduce the tenure, you can't really pay for it because it's too expensive to begin with. Is this the core issue that we as a country are infatuated with the importance of just everybody getting and owning a house? That we don't create this transition where we slowly get people up the ladder, but we want to rush people to buy a house immediately. And as a result, we create all these mechanisms to encourage it when they're not really necessarily ready? That's a very good question. Um, there's two ways of looking at this. Now, people might be saying it's um, panic buying because they actually know that they can't afford another one. So they basically want to buy early so that they can get into the property ladder that's 35 years. Yeah. So it's like as if there's no choice. So, But the other thing is, um, say for example, um, people were to say that let's let's uh, rent first. Actually, a rental uh, protection is not very strong in Malaysia because we don't have Rental Tenancy Act. So I I've, I've seen some cases where, whereby, say for example, rental is two plus one. So after two years, after your family has settled in that community, in that neighbourhood, suddenly the landlord wants to increase the rental up to 30%. Now, you, you don't have a choice there because you've already settled. So you just pay the 30%. So rental becomes expensive because you're locked into an area. And you have no choice. I yes. think that's one of the biggest challenges I hear you now, right? Naturally, people say, yeah, okay, don't own a home, just get into rental but First, rental yeah. actually is not an easy path yes. for many people because you're beholden to the landlord and the landlord will just drive you up the rates <laughs> later and then you're stuck with that scenario right whereas many people feel at least with the home ownership I'm in control and mm. at least I have some clarity and certainty but it comes back to the real problem which is that the tenure is too long mm. I wonder then when we when we just break out that definition of affordability are we seeing some distinctions you know or even separation by location income levels who is really bearing the brunt of the lack of affordability in Malaysia? Clearly, it's um, Kuala Lumpur. Kuala Lumpur, people in urban uh, areas, uh, Georgetown. It's creeping into Ipoh, but not so. There's a real divide between a housing market in Ipoh and Greek or even Taiping. So one of the issues facing urban centres such as Kuala Lumpur, Georgetown, is that 70% of population is going to, uh, is basically aiming for 30% of the stock. That's only the bit that they are they can afford to buy or afford to rent. When we have a situation whereby, in a way, the distribution of income and the distribution of homes, be it ownership or rental, is skewed only for the haves, meaning the upper echelon of our society, then the 70% get squeezed out and they live in substandard housing if it's rental. We see a lot of incidences whereby those who work, um, first time working, have to stay in like hostel, dorm-like uh, places owned by a landlord, changing the house into like five rooms. And this does not follow any building standards or uh, fire standards, uh, but it, it is done because we don't have a Rental Tenancy Act. Our rental is not pegged to building condition survey nor security of tenancy. 
tenure. So these are two limitations that we face in rental. Now, in terms of um, housing that's generally affordable for 70% of population, we're talking about 70% of population. That's a huge number. Yes, a huge number. (laughs) Yes. Some people will say, okay, um, there are houses, you know, Kuala Kubu Baru. Of course, it's a over there, it can be 300,000. But who wants to travel all the way to KL um, to work here if, um, you know, your house is in Kuala Kububaru? And some some then developers then put um, some affordable housing units, they call it affordable housing units, in Transport Orientated Development, TOD, but at 330 square feet. Mm-hmm. And that's 300,000. Mm-hmm. And then when people don't buy these sort of properties, they ask the question, which I thought was quite redundant, why don't people buy these houses? Mm. So really what you're saying is the quality and the quality of life that you offer from both options, right? A much smaller place near transit places in the city versus like something really out, outskirts far away. It's just not cutting it for those who yeah. cannot afford, right? No, no, it's not. And it's 70%. So what we're trying to um, explain when we want to make housing generally affordable is that at any income strata, be it you are at the median, be it you're at the 60th percentile, 40th percentile, you can have a choice of owning a home or renting a home. Currently, this is not happening. So I would then, uh, people would say, oh, but affordable housing is social housing. PPR. No, that's not. Social housing is when it's an issue of poverty. And therefore, if they, we don't give them subsidised housing, they'll be homeless. So let me understand the, the distinction, mm. right, between social housing and affordable housing. What are the mechanisms that we need to put in place for affordable housing? Because social housing is about, okay, we build the property, we provide at a significant discount, yes. we enable it, we make it easier for really the B40 or even yep. below the debt, make it available, right? But affordable housing now is expanded to, as you say, 70%, even 80% of the population, right? What kind of mechanisms are there now and what is still lacking? Oh, to begin with, um, we really don't have enough numbers of um, affordable housing units for the middle group in our country. So let's say, for, so for me... Uh, so it's in, a supply issue still? It's a supply issue still. It's a supply issue still. And most developers would put out housing stock. Starting price is 500000 600000 and above. This is not an affordable price for the majority of Malaysians. Mm. And yet, these are the houses that they want to sell. Now, when it's not being sold, there is a glut. Eh? If you look at NAPIC figures, there is a big glut at the high-end properties as well as at, they call it the affordable housing properties as well. But it's 330 square feet at 300,000. Nobody will buy it. But at the glut at the top end is um, houses that is uh, with a gross floor area of 1,800 square feet and more, but at 1 million, uh, 600,000 and above. These houses used to, should be the ones that's being put in the affordable housing segment because that's a decent standard of living and yet it is about 600 to 700,000 it will price out 70% of our population rather than pull uh, give supply for the effective demand this supply has no demand mm. so when there is no demand there is glut and what do they want from the government government policy is to open this units to foreign ownership. With the exchange rate that we're experiencing right now... Of course, it's easy to take up, yes. right? It's cheap for foreign investors. So my question is, Phil, who are we building for in urban settings, in urban areas? We'll have more from Soraya after these messages. Stay with us, BFM 89.9.
Welcome back. You're tuned in to The Property Show on The Morning Run. I'm Philip C. and I have with us Dr. Suraya Ismail, the Director of Research at Kazana Research Institute, KRI, as we unpack the issue of housing affordability in Malaysia. This number, 1.9 million out of 9.6 million residential units are unoccupied. That's the number, right? That's the two over million houses which really have that mismatch of demand and supply. Yes. Where they're overpriced and what's happening is you're saying that people are saying there's no demand inverted commas in the local because for some it's outpriced so then it's better to get overseas investors in but that's been hard to do during the pandemic isn't it so what then happens then prices should come down right yes naturally shouldn't prices drop but we haven't seen that drop take place why not I don't know (laughs) (laughs) is it rig who knows (laughs) so then which comes back to you know the market structure of Malaysia's Mm. property market you know if you see what's happening around the world we hear this contagion that property bubbles are beginning to deflate. What's happening in Australia, New Zealand, right? Canada, you're seeing that downward pressure taking place. Why are we not seeing that in Malaysia then? Philip, let me give a reason why we can't compare with them. All the housing delivery systems. So let's talk about a housing delivery system, supply and demand. All these countries that you mentioned, housing delivery system is basically they, they bill it first and then they sell. So basically, one goes into the housing market with the stock on the supply curve. You can really put a dot on the supply curve. Our system is contract to bill, meaning we are sold a piece of paper. We can't see the building. So basically, always people ask me, is this a, a proper supply? I ask them to put, where do you put abandoned projects, units on the supply curve? There is no dot on the supply curve. So I'm even questioning whether what we actually have and practice in this country is actually a demand and supply problem. Because what we practice in terms of housing delivery system is basically you buy a piece of paper, you wait for it. If it happens, if the the project is completed, way good for you. But if not, you are saddled and burdened with a house that you don't own, but with a mortgage that you must still pay. How is this right? So even if we are experiencing property bubble, other countries, our system is so complex that it is not easy to explain it that way. I guess it's particularly hard to unpack for Malaysia whether or not we are in this impending property bubble burst. I want to come back to the earlier you know, discussion we had that what's happening, what's propping perhaps the market is that the financial system or the financial markets have created financing products that are longer in tenure, which allow people then to own a house, even though for them it's still not affordable to do. Again, I guess then the issue is as we see Bank Nagara and Central Bank increasing housing rates with BPR rising going so forward, right? How does that affect the ability for Malaysians to pay for these loans going forward? Oh, this is this is uh, going to be quite a, a tough time for all of us. Basically, I, I we did some simulation uh, in the office about these uh, increasing of these rates. A lot of people will be. You see, what is the basic problem is that houses are overpriced but affordable. So one of the issues uh, facing, if say, uh, let's say you go into liquidation, you can't afford your loans now, so you have to value again the house price. Now, what if you bought that house during rapid price escalation and that's not the true value of the house? Now, when you do, again, uh, a valuation by the bank, sometimes it goes down 100 or even 200,000. Yep. So it's underwater mortgage now. So even mm. if you sell it, you can't recoup. It's a real issue now when it's overpriced housing 
but you still took that loan because it's affordable, quote unquote. But now, if you have to realize or you have to 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 sell that house, um, it's very difficult because it'll be below the mortgage. So it's underwater mortgages. Um, I'm actually quite worried about this. Um, I do hope um, we'll find um, household will find a way in which we can uh, get around uh, it. get around this storm. Lah. But it's hard in the sense that I understand that like in some countries, a larger proportion of their mortgage rates are fixed. But in Malaysia, is it the is that the case or is it mostly floating? Some are, some are floating. Some are floating. Some are really floating, yes. It is it is a cause for concern. Do you think then with the government, you know, I see a lot of noise now from the government talking about affordability, that they plan to establish this affordable housing price index, right? Mm. How does that help? Um, I think it's very important because the affordability housing index is based on wages at the locality. So basically, housing affordability in Greek is different than housing affordability in Ipoh. So we actually have a proper, accurate, affordability measure using the median multiple. Housing, uh, there's, there's other indicators, for example, residual income or housing cost burden. That's There are three major methods. Um, but the other, the f- latter two have mortgages in it. So we have to ensure that when we do the affordability index, it is packed to income as well and, and house prices only. Do not blur that indicator uh, with mortgage. Yeah, so you yeah. don't want financing to be part of the consideration Correct. here in defining affordability. Yes. This is, I think, the central challenge, right? What are the criteria here? And you, you talked about how you parse it. You have to parse it not by state, but even by the diary and district. But even yeah. that can be sometimes very broad and big, isn't it? How granular should you define these indexes then? So normally, when we look at um, how... Um, we how do we define the housing market? So it's basically where you go to travel. So we have this uh, hierarchy of um, traveling or needs. So the your home should be where the housing market is where you stay, where you work and where your children go but to school. But increasingly that's not likely, isn't it? Because many people live far out but they, they work elsewhere. Uh, so so basically the housing market is going uh, bigger and bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So but but one should look at it that way. It should be looked mm, at that way. Mm. So that's fine. So, for example, Greek is Greek, but is Nilai part of uh, Kuala Lumpur? Should we be looking at Kuala Lumpur prices? Or do we average out and do, you know, like concentric zones for different, different places mm. when, um, as you mentioned, they might be too, too wide of a space and therefore we have to even cut it even more. So let's say we run this index and I mm. hope it comes out soon. We are clear what it looks like, its shape. Hopefully it's measured by the right way. And we find like a specific location is not considered affordable. What can the government do then? I think um, the most important thing is that when developers do feasibility study on what to build in that area, it must be packed into the income of the people there. So what we want to create is a, a housing market that is affordable to the local population. So um, if we peg it to income, there's no reason why houses would be Unaffordable. So that is something that local council and state planning agency can really help in terms of addressing issues of wages and house prices. So that's the only two things we should look at. You know, to the earlier point you talk about that the big challenge is also that mindset challenge that people must get onto the property ladder, but they're stuck by it because of the challenges of rental. That's a federal initiative and action, isn't it? How do you give more rights to the tenants? How easy is it to basically put in place those provisions and protections 
to basically encourage people to be tenants? This is um, very difficult because um, actually I'm, I'm actually looking into the Rental Tenancy Act as well with a group of um, re- um, professors and researchers from UIA. The issue now is that though it's a federal uh, federal legislation, if a house is landed, it is under the state uh, jurisdiction. And whenever you want to formalise something that you've done in a customary way, people are always very, very hesitant to want to legalise or institutionalise Say were because for them rent it's like oh I've done it for twenty years I never yeah, had the market decide. <laughs> the market dictate right that's yes. what most people say yes but again when they say market dictate is your property something that follows regulation standards. Standards. standards because people always talk about markets but if your if your product is not up to the standards and regulation and safety standards um, you can't really say it's a market that's opportunistic behavior so so when people always say about let the market dictates you can read the market as well and mind you landlord and te- uh, tenant type of relationship there's an asymmetry of power so you need the rental tenancy act to protect the tenant of course you you can say that it needs to protect both but in most developed countries, the threat of eviction is very real. And that's why we always need to look at it in a bigger, wider spectrum of how do we create communities in that area. So help me contrast. I think we we, we as a business station, we see what's happening in China. Mm. We see these property developers really get into hot soup. And in China, 25% of its economy is linked to property wealth. As a result, I'm at this crossroads, right, where we have this whole debate about affordability by, you know, for 70% of this population here. At the same time, there are these property developers where, you know, in some countries like China becomes too big to fail, Mm. but they are also partly responsible for creating this housing glut. How do you reconcile both? How do you, how you, how are you able to kind of find solutions that drive this affordability for, you know, residents and, you know, common folk us versus, you know, needing to prop up and support these large mega property developers going forward. Oh, it's very interesting, uh, Philip. Okay, let's let's unpack that question a bit. So wealth accumulation via properties. So there's generally two ways of doing it. One is when somebody buys for speculation, uh, speculative buying, and then they flip the, the property. This is when we have rapid price escalation in that housing market area. This has been shown by many hardening or regression analysis. The other one, is when in say in the housing market you have maybe 30% of the housing stock which is a cottage industry whereby maybe you would like to have another home uh, whereby that is your income when you are older then you put this house in a rental market and you get income from it every month. Yep. Now, this is very healthy, the latter, whereby it is wealth accumulation. The rent is based on the standards of your home, not because you want to pay the mortgage. On the other side, when you do speculative buying, the rent must cover your mortgage. Now, this increased rental prices as well. So the character of making sure that your units are sold in the right way or your units are um, developed the right way is something that we should look at if it had, were to happen here for property developers. We, w- we should support those that bill for the cottage industry to ensure that uh, we actually build houses for people to, yes, earn a living, have shelter. So it has many different um, reasons or objectives for a community or for a, a city owners or mm. rural it owners. It is a good, greater good. Greater good. Mm. Because if you just look at property as return on investment, then we will end up with so many other countries that is failing the desires of their community, their, their citizens 
for renting and ownership. So if we can get our development trajectory objective right, meaning this is to make sure that we have homes that we can afford for rental and ownership. And that's when we have to impress upon property developers and the government to understand the bigger picture, the bigger objective of wealth accumulation in a sustainable manner. So that we don't bail out all these too big to fail developers. Yes, why should we? Yes, and and when a return on investment and when they can't sell to local population, they open it up to uh, foreign ownership. Mm. How is that wealth for our country? I might be wrong to say that, but yes, how is that wealth for our country, our own people? That's all the time we have for today. Thanks a lot, Suraya, for coming and joining us in the show today. On today's Property Show, I had the privilege of speaking to Dr. Suraya Ismail, the Director of Research at Kazana Research Institute, KRI, on the issue of housing affordability and the ability of Malaysians to get onto the property ladder. We have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.